book of First Peter in your Bible. If you can't find it, that's okay. There's, there's no shame. That's why we're here. We're here to learn and understand the Bible. So if you want to know where it is, it's towards the end of your Bible. And if you still can't find it, there is a table of contents. You won't get any judgment from me. And uh, while you're turning there, too, if you would like a Bible and uh, you don't have one, you can uh, take uh, the blue ones in the seats in front of you home and keep it as our gift to you. And because at church here at Manor, we believe that we believe in the Bible and we want everyone who wants to have a Bible, have a Bible. Right? Right. So that you can take it home as your very own. All right, let's uh, put the, uh, the the thing on. So we're looking at the book of First Peter, and uh, specifically the tagline I've given it to it is: This is a series for those who have been mistreated, misunderstood, and misplaced. The entire goal of the book of First Peter is found in chapter five, verse twelve, where it says, "I've written to you briefly." briefly exhorting you and declaring that this is the true grace of God, stand firm in it. So what it is essentially is it's a book written to, for people who are going through hardship and trial and they're under pressure and all that thing. And uh, Paul, or Peter is writing to them in order to stand firm in the faith, to endure it. You see, these people, they were exiles. They were, they, they was written to a group of Christians who were living for Jesus, and because they were living for Jesus, it actually required them to act and think differently than the culture around them. And because of that, their convictions of Christians got misinterpreted to be things that they were not. They were mistreated because of it. And as a result, they were displaced and misplaced, and they felt like they were sojourners. They didn't really feel like they belonged that they were kind of exiles. You see that throughout the entire book of First Peter. And I want to say to you, the reason why I think we're going through it as a church is this, is I think that you and I live in a similar cultural moment. That Christians uh, are a minority in an increasingly antagonistic culture. We are exiles not geographically, but morally and spiritually. And just like the people who this book is written to, uh, we will be misinterpreted, right? There are convictions that we have about relationships, about faith, about science, about the world around us that we have in the Bible that can grossly get uh, misinterpreted by people. And as a result, that misinterpretation leads to mistreatment, and that mistreatment makes us feel like we don't belong. We can be misunderstood, we can be misplaced. Like we don't, like we wonder if it's worth following Jesus, if, if that drifting that we're feeling, the fact that we're drifters or sojourners, is like that's not a nice feeling. And we're just wondering whether or not following Jesus is worth it. First Peter is written to help us have a durable faith. To have a faith that can stand in the face of any kind of trial, that you and I face today. And I actually think today that uh, our scripture today, I believe, gives us a way to do that. 
And I believe that if you were, the observation that I'm going to make from the text this morning is that if you and I discipline and prepare our minds to be quick and have quick thinking and clear thinking, that can foster a durable relationship with Jesus. So let me say that again because that's sort of the main observation I'm making in the text today is that the, if you and I develop and disciple or discipline ourselves to have the ability to think quick and to think clearly, that will help us have a durable, gritty faith, a faith that can, we can stand firm in the midst of trials. If you look at the verse here, it's going to say this. This is the key text for us today. It goes like this. Okay? Peter says it better when he says this. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded... Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the resurrection of Jesus. So let me repeat that again. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the resurrection of Jesus. So that first part there where it says, prepare your minds for action, that's actually not a literal translation. That's a thought-for-thought thought translation. The literal translation or the word-for-word word translation goes like this. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind and be sober. Okay? So that's, you can find that in the King James Version. And that version makes absolutely no sense to me. Okay? How many of you read that King James Version and you read... That phrase, gird up the loins of your mind, go, I don't understand what that means. Yeah, okay, a few of you. Well, you know, most of you put your hands down, so you're awesome, awesome Bible te- uh, scholars. Well, here, here's the idea. When I read this, I got really confused because minds don't have loins. But what that really means, you see, here's, here's, what, here's what it means. It's a, it's, a, it's a phrase, okay? See, back in the day... Men didn't wear jeans or pants. What did men wear? Robes, right? So this is the best thing I could find in the house that represented a robe, okay? So you just kind of got to give me a little bit of uh, forgiveness and grace, okay? So men would wear robes around in that day, okay? And what they would do, that phrase, gird up the loins of your mind, uh, uh, gird up uh, your, the loins of your mind, what it really means is this. is like, in that day, when you would wear this, you would be kind of like doing this. Right now, if you notice, if, if you're wearing a robe and you've got to go into battle or you've got to make a fast action, it's actually very hard, isn't it, right? Like, you could trip, right? So you imagine being in battle or fighting or something, and you've got, you're tripping over your own rope. So what they said is, in those days, gird up, uh, <clears throat> gird up the loins was a phrase where you would take, I'm not going to do it, but you would take your robe and wrap it around in between your legs to kind of create uh, the ability where you can move your legs freely so that when you battle, you're free to move. You're free to move faster and you're more agile and all that kind of thing. You see a similar sort of thing when we have the story of the Passover, if you remember. You guys remember what it says in the Passover is when uh, Israel is commanded to do the Passover, they're called to tuck in their ropes. So the idea there 
is that you <clears throat> prepare your dress in such a way where you can move quickly when the time comes. And so when it says, gird up the loins of your mind, what it's really trying to say to you is that it's trying to say to you is that Peter wants Christians to be disciplined in their thinking so that they can quickly respond to any situation that the Lord may allow you to walk through. So you understand what I'm saying? It's, it's the ability to think quickly. It's the ability that when suffering comes, when trials come, you, you've prepared your mind in such a way where it's ready to act, where it's ready to go, where it's, where it's going to act quickly. Okay? And so here's what, and I think we developed that quickly by, or just uh, telling you by memorizing Scripture is that if we put our minds and get our minds focused on Scripture and memorize Scripture, then what winds up happening is when we soak ourselves in the Bible and those situations come where we're under pressure or we're going through a trial, then what can happen is because we memorized the Word and we prepared our mind for action, there's that situ- we can remember, you know, you know what this situation reminds me of? This Bible verse. And we can prepare to get our minds for action. It also tells us to be clear thinking. It says, therefore, prepare your minds for action and being sober-minded. Now, when we think of sobriety, what typically do we think of? What's, what's, what's the thing that we think of? What's the other thing we think of sobriety, associated with sobriety? Alcohol. Okay. We we to uh, to be sober typically means to be free of alcohol, but that's actually not kind of the thinking that's going on here. Even though the Bible describes drunkenness as sin, Peter is not specifically talking about uh, that. Another way to say that is that being sober-minded would be the ability to think clearly to be logical or be realistic about something. It's the idea that your mind, there's nothing impairing your mind from being able to think clearly, okay? And sin has the ability to do that. There's something about our sinful nature that dulls our conscience, and we become mentally impaired. And when we become mentally impaired, uh, we can't make proper judgments in the moment regarding the trials. What alcohol biologically does to your body, your sin or the sinful nature does to your soul and to your mind. Okay? I want you to think about that. So an example uh, that I would probably give of my own life would be this. Is years and years ago, I, 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 I dated a girl and I had idolized the relationship more than I love Jesus. And she caught on to that, and, you know, uh, through, through, long story short is that we broke up because I had idolized the relationship over her, or over God. In that moment, I got really, really angry. And some of you have heard the story before. It's like she was kind of an artsy kind of person. She would do watercolor paintings. She loved plush bears, and she would write poetry, so she broke up with me the first year of college, and I had all this kind of like, oh, Dan, you're so awesome, you're so godly, and all, you know, all this kind of thing posted on my dorm room wall. And when she broke up with me, here's what I, I was so angry and so vengeful. That's the sinful nature going. Here's what I did, right? I took all 
the, I took all the letters, I took all the plush bears, and I took all the watercolor paintings, and I tore all the letters and paintings up, and I cut the heads off the bears, stuffed it in a care package, and sent it to her. Okay? Okay? Your pastor needs Jesus. <laughs> okay? Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, what were you thinking? And the answer to that was, I wasn't thinking, right? And that's my point, is that when you involve yourself in sin, when you give yourself over to sin, there's something about it that impairs your ability to think clearly, okay? Just like alcohol does to your body, sin does to this. And so what the Bible's saying to us, is what, what I want you to catch here, is that when you, are in a, when you are in a trial, whenever you're under pressure, one of, the, one of the things you can do is you can discipline your mental game or your mind game to be ready to think clearly, to be, think fast, to think quick, and to think clearly. And the scripture gives us three ways to do that. The first is this. The first is that uh, we uh, put all our hope in Jesus. Second, we avoid regression, and third, we live holy. So let me explain this uh, as we go uh, through through the passage this morning. If you notice, it says this, Therefore, prepare your heart, prepare your minds for action, so be quick to think, and be sober minded, be clear to think. And how do you do that? You set your hope fully on the grace but that will be brought to you uh, at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay? So he's saying this, if you want to be able to think clearly, clearly, if you want to be think quickly, then here's what I need you to do. I need you to put everything that you are and throw your entire being onto the hope of Jesus Christ and that he's going to return again. Notice very carefully that this is, what he, this is why he spends the first like, little bit of the chapter going through how awesome Jesus is. Remember what I told you about uh, therefore? Remember? The verse starts with a therefore. And whenever we see a therefore in Scripture, we should ask... One more time. What is it? Therefore. Okay? Usually when it says that in Scripture, what it means is on the basis of everything that we just said, I need you to be able to... Prepare your mind for action and to think clearly. So what is it that they taught that was just said? Well, you remember what we've spent the last couple weeks on. We, we spent a little bit talking about how we have the blessings in Jesus. That we have been redeemed, that we have an inheritance that is waiting for us. And that those blessings totally overshadow any pain or any sort of hardship that you would face. That I think Romans put it, puts it better when it says, I consider that our present hardships now are not worth comparing to the glory to be revealed. Then last week, we talked about the fact that we are a highly favored people. And then we talked about the fact that we are a privileged people. And so when you see that word, therefore, I want you could read it like this. On the basis that you are blessed, favored, and privileged, Get ready to think quick and clear by trusting everything that you put in Jesus Christ. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean, for example? Well, that means that everything, your entire hope, rests in Jesus in such a way 
where if Jesus doesn't come through for you, you're toast. So just, just a quick illustration of this. So I'll compare and contrast. There's a movie that I was watching a long time ago. It was an early 2000s movie. And it had a, a, and it had this star in it. or I can't remember exactly what it was called. But there was this uh, antagonist in the show, in the movie. And uh, he, was, he was facing imminent death. Somebody was going to, like, take his life. And what he had was he had a bunch of necklaces around his, his, uh, his neck representing the different faiths. So he had Judaism, Islam, Christianity, Buddhism. And so he starts, as the guy is coming to, to end his life, he starts praying through every single one of them. I'm praying through for the, I'm going to pray a prayer for, uh, I'm going to pray the, Islam, uh, the Muslim prayer and pray a Jewish prayer and pray a Christian prayer. I'm going to pray a Buddhist prayer. Like he's going through all of it because he isn't hedging his bets on one, right? And so that's not what this text is saying, okay? An example of what this text would be saying would be an example of this. Let's say that you're getting ready to seed, and it's another drought year, okay? It's another drought year. But you go and seed anyway, and you do all the work, and, and then you have another hailstorm or two come through, and it's pretty bad. And then, for some sort of reason, there's no insurance whatsoever, and you're stuck in the place where the only hope that you have is that God makes the seed grow. That's the only thing you're left with. That's sort of the idea, that all your hope, everything that you are, is placed on the person and work of Jesus Christ, particularly when he's coming again. So number one, if you want to be a quick and clear thinker, Put everything that you have on the person of Jesus Christ. Second, avoid regression. We talked about this last week, but it says this. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Friends, nothing will determine your ability to prepare your mind for action and be sober-minded than to, have, than to have a childlike obedience to the Father. How many of you parents know that no matter how hard you try, you can't always explain why your children need to do what you ask them to? Hands up? Yeah, you understand this, right? The same is true with God. And us choosing to obey Him, whether we understand it or not, is what sets us on the road for having a quick and clear mind that is able to function and make decisions in hard times. As the verse points out, our obedience itself is what keeps us from not slipping away. And I want to be careful, I've been thinking about this, and I want to think, there are three particular ways. I was thinking about this uh, the other day, and I was like, what are, what are some ways that we can regress into our former ways of passion. And I listed three that I think all Christians can fall into at some point. Number one, when the hardships come and the trials come and we can decide to give up on Jesus entirely, right? We know people like that. That the, there's something going on in their life, there's a health scare, there's some sort of persecution, the relationship falls apart, it's just too much and they go, I didn't, I didn't sign on for this and I don't want to follow Jesus anymore. And so they outright consciously make a decision to go back to the way that they used to live and stop following Jesus altogether, right? 
They walk away from the faith. The second is, is that people become intellectual believers but practical atheists. So what I mean by that is, is that they don't actually consciously stop believing the, in Jesus Christ, but on a practical level that they do. So they're going through a hardship and they're, and they're going through some sort of pressure in life and they don't actually stop believing or intellectually agreeing that Jesus died for their sins, but they live like an atheist. They stop going to church. They pull away from relationship. They stop reading their Bible. All that kind of thing. And thirdly, I think that we seek temporary relief in our old passions. And if you were going to ask me which one of these are the ones that I think that we're more tempted to regress in our former passions, uh, it would be this last one, is that we are seeking temporary relief in our old passions. What do I mean by that? What I mean by it is, is that you're living for Jesus, you're doing your thing, you're following him as best as you can, you're obeying the word, you're, you're, you're pursuing God at everything, but then you're going through a hardship, and that hardship, there's no relief in that hardship. You're just trying to trust Jesus as best you can. And sort of what winds up happening is you kind of go back and think to the way that you lived before you met Jesus. And you're like, man, if I could just indulge in my former way of life, maybe just for a second, not, not entirely, but maybe if I just took a sip, maybe if I just indulged in it one time, then I would, then I would feel some relief. Okay? An example of this, I've asked Liz for this, is, some of you are going to appreciate that if this is if you have celiac disease, okay? So a few weeks ago, uh, we were struggling. Uh, we, we, we were, it was just a, it wasn't a bad week, but we, we, we had a little bit of a, Lynn had a stressful week at work, and we were in Calgary. And in Calgary, it's always McDonald's time with us, right? We love McDonald's, right? Well, if you have celiac disease, you know that McDonald's is an absolute no-go, Okay? Can't have it at all. Everything has gluten in it. The cheese does, the meat does, the bread does, the pickles do. I'm sure everything has gluten in it, right? So here's what happened. I was like, oh, man, I could go for a Big Mac. So I ordered like a double Big Mac with fries and Coke, and we're driving back home. And you know the McDonald's smell. It fills the car, right? And I was like, oh, this is so good. And Liz goes, did you get any for me? And I was like, you can't have any. And she's like, I know, but I want some. And at that moment, I was the worst husband in the world. I was like, oh, this Big Mac is so good. Oh, sesame seed bun, two patties. This is awesome. It's great. And she got so mad at me. She said, give it here. And she took the burger and ate it, right? And uh, I was like, babe, you can't have that. That's bad for you. And she's like, it was worth it. <laughs> right? That's kind of like what sin is, okay? Is that avoiding your, avoiding your foreign passions, it's the scripture is saying, hey, as obedient children, don't, for, don't give in to your foreign passions. It's kind of like that, is that we know that, when, we know that there's something bad for us. But, you know, we're going through a stressful time and somehow we give into it just to find a moment of relief, okay? It's kind of like this, is when we are under pressure, we think back to the good times we had before we met Jesus. And uh, if, you want a really, if you want a scriptural example of this, this comes from a, 
Numbers 11, 5. And this is a story where uh, the Israelites thought about the same thing. Okay? You remember in particular that the Israelites were suffering. They were being held captive under Egypt. God frees them, and then they spend time in the desert. Right? And what are they known for in the desert? Complaining, right? But it's very interesting how the, if you follow the psychology of a bit, uh, what they were complaining about, because at one point they're in the desert, they're, they're going to the promised land, it's not a good time, it's hot, it's sticky, it's desert, they're eating manna or whatever they are, and here's what they say. They say this, I want you to catch this. They say, we remember the f- that we used to eat, we remember the fish we used to eat for free in Egypt, and we had all the cucumbers and melons and leeks and garlic that we wanted. None of those I like, but they did. Okay? And so they're around the campfire. You can imagine this. And they're like, oh, man, do you remember how good we had it in Egypt? How awesome it was? How, how much food we had? Man, that was awesome. Do you understand what they're doing in that moment? They're, they're saying that, hey, even though we were slaves, even though we were captive, even though it was bad for us, we still had this. Maybe we should go back, and you and I do the same thing with our former passions in times of suffering. Is that we may not walk away from Jesus completely. We may not be a people that intellectually believe, but practically we live atheistically. But we might indulge in a former sin just for a quick moment of reprieve. I said this last week, I'm going to say it again. We all have a sinful nature inside of us. God has come to redeem that. I know we're not all perfect, but in moments of suffering, when you are tempted to go back to your sinful nature, I want to submit to you that maybe the reason you return to your former passions is because there's some benefit in it that you're not finding by trusting in Jesus. Does that make sense? Maybe, maybe not a little. There's some sort of reprieve, right? So maybe a good example would be alcoholism, right? So you come to faith in Jesus, and you know you've got to you got to break you got to break free of alcoholism. So you do, and then you go through a stressful time, and then you're tempted to revert back to it because you're just stressed and you need a little bit of a breather. People can do that. Every single one of us uh, has something in our lives, I believe. We have one or more former passions that when we are suffering, we consider returning to in moments. You might be asking yourself, well, what is is that? Well, let me me give you a question. Let me throw it out to you. Let me see uh, how you feel about it as an evaluation question. When the stress is piling up in your life, what do you turn to to escape pain and avoid conflict? What do you turn to? Do you turn to the garage and kind of avoid the problem by going working on the tractor? Do you turn to food? Do you turn to the internet? Do you turn to alcoholism? Do you turn to being vengeful? Do you withdraw? When the stress is piling up, 
what do you do to escape pain and avoid conflict? And then the second question I would ask and consider you to answer in your own time is this. Is if I were, uh, if what I used to escape pain was taken away from me, so withdrawing or the internet or workaholism or complaining or being vengeful or whatever it would be, if what I used to escape pain was taken away from me, what problem would I have to face? What is your answer to that? And whatever your answer is to that question, that's what you're using to avoid an area that I think that God would want to work in your life. Right. It's your former passion. And Peter is saying here, what he's saying here is that you, in order to think clearly, in order to think quick and clear, you've got to put your hope in Jesus. But as obedient children... You've got to avoid your former passions, your sinful nature. Why? Because when you indulge in your sinful nature, you have you you impair your ability to make good judgments, judgments that you need to make in times of suffering. Lastly, it asks you to live a holy life. Okay, this is what the text says here. But now you must be holy in everything that you do, just as God. Who, uh, who chose you is holy. For scripture says, you must be holy because I am holy. Okay? And what I want you to understand here is that, there, I don't know if you know, what, what, is the, what is the doctrinal word we use for becoming holy? It starts with an S. Sanctification, right? Sanctification is a word that we mean, means to to make holy or sacred. But I don't know if you've made this mistake. When I was a kid and I first heard of sanctification, I, have, I always mistook sacred for scared, right? So when I heard about making sanctified, when I said, hey, our goal is to be sanctified, I always thought that means you should be scared, right? It's such an easy mistake to make. And I was petrified on the topic whenever the Bible spoke about holiness. And so I want to ask the question here. Uh, how about you? When you think about being a holy person and living a truly holy life, does it scare you? I think if I were honest with myself, there would be many of us that would actually say yes. You guys see the technical mistake I made. I simply inverted the two letters and it changed Scared to say uh, sacred, the whole meaning change. Being scared speaks of things you want to run and hide from or avoid. Being sacred speaks of that which is truly special and valuable and precious and important. And I'm wondering how many of us have made a similar mistake seeing holiness as something that we should be scared of. Afraid of what it would make you look like or act like or be like. You see, if you are scared of holiness, you're not going to pursue it. And I don't know then that we do. And here's what I want you to say. I want you to understand that God wants you to be holy. He wants you to live a holy life while you're on this earth. It says so in scripture, for now you must be holy in everything you do, just as God who chose you to live is holy. 
you must be holy. Just how important is holiness? Well, Hebrews 12, 14 says that without holiness, no one will see God. <clears throat> Which leads me to two critical questions. First, do you want to be a holy person? And second, does that scare you? If that scares you, you need to see that Satan has been at work in your life and you must defeat him today to tear down this destructive lie in your life. Satan has made you scared of holiness. So how do you change that? Well, from now on, whenever you think of holiness, I'd, I want you to be able to see holiness as being healthy. Health, of course, uh, health, of course, is something that you and I all want, whether it's physical, mental, or spiritual. And spiritual health comes down to one's holiness. If you're not holy, you are not healthy. Why? I believe the answer is provided in the next verse where it says, because God is holy. Friends, his greatest longing and desire is for God's brothers and sisters, or Jesus' brothers and sisters, to become like him. And as we do, it becomes not only our, our joy, but his greatest joy. Holiness is not something that he tries to do Holiness is who he is. He's the definition of holiness. Note that the text says, I am holy. It is, the, it is from the essence of God's holiness that all good things in life and relationship stem from. Things like joy and freedom and peace and intimacy and power and every manner of fruitfulness. Conversely, it is from every essence of unholiness that every bad thing comes from. Things like fear and bondage and disbelief, <clears throat> disunity and death. I think it's very important to note that Peter isn't simply suggesting that holiness could be a good idea to consider or something that you might want to perhaps think about someday. He's actually stating it as an imperative, a command. Holiness is on the final exam. And remember that your heavenly father to whom you pray has no favorites. He will judge or reward you according to what you do. What does it mean to be holy? Well, if the Bible says you need to be holy as God is holy, there must be something about God's holiness that you and I must emulate. Essentially what it means is to be when we talk about God's holiness, it means that he is separate or unlike any other God, that he is untouched by evil, that he is the true God, that he is a God that loves you. And just as God is holy, God has called us to be separate from the rest of humanity. Be holy as he is holy. I want to make sure that I bring a word of caution to this. Oh, that's, that's not what it says here. When we talk about God's holiness, for centuries Christians have debated what this means. And they'll look at the world, the world out there, and say, the world, that's bad. So what we need to do is escape the world. And what we, Christians have, a lot of Christians have done is we've physically moved away. We've kind of set up our own Christian subcultures and our all the kind of stuff, and we've kind of hidden away from the world. But here's the problem with that line of thinking. 
when we fear the world out there, but don't deal with the world in here, guess where, guess what follows us when we run away? The world in here. And that's why when we have our Christian clubs and our Christian schools and our subcultures and our Bible schools and our private schools and our home schools, all that sinful nature stuff, all the stuff that we see in the world shows up inside of those things because of the world in here, because of our sinful natures, because God has created our, our, God, we, our hearts are tainted and broken. And I just say something. The church is to be in the world like a ship is in the ocean. Can you understand that? But when the ocean begins to seep into the ship, the vessel is in trouble. When you and I conform to a sick culture, you and I become sick. Okay? But you and I need to know how to navigate the culture without being contaminated by it. Okay? So here's what I'm going to tell you to do. Here are the advice I would give in terms of this. It's okay to look like your culture, except where your culture con- contradicts the scriptures. And I'm going to add a subnote to that and say that there is a lot of places where our culture contradicts scriptures. But I don't believe necessarily the answer is to go run and hide. The answer is to be separate morally, to live differently, to have a different kind of ethic. As an illustration, let me, let me give an illustration. It, it, it's something similar like this. Imagine that you are being picked on the team You're being called out from among the people. And Peter says that's what it means to be a holy follower of Jesus. God is saying, come out and be separate from them and touch no unclean thing. I was looking up what that actually means. And it actually means not only to touch no unclean thing, but to not keep touching unclean things. That's what you and I are called to do. So he's saying that there is a separation about how you and I are live and think and behave from the world around us. A friend of mine uh, shared the story with me about years ago, and he was heavily into uh, drugs, and, and uh, Jesus did a work in his life, and he became freely, completely free from all his addiction. He was doing so well that a part of him, um, uh, the, part of the reason he was doing so well is he had to avoid the friends that he hung out with in the sense that he didn't want to participate with them in, in what they were doing. So he was friendly with them. He'd, he'd talk to them on the phone and stuff. But he didn't actually participate in what they were doing. So he, he kept a distance. And eventually he thought to himself, I, I, I think I'm doing okay. Right? And so sometimes as Christians, we, we, we can be proud about our spirituality and our sense of holiness and righteousness. We kind of think, I think I'm okay and I think maybe I can, I'm, I'm not going to be, I can indulge in this and not really get involved in being addicted the same way. So this is what he did. He said, I, I think I'm okay. I'm just going to go and maybe not do hard drugs, but maybe smoke something with the boys just to let them know that, you know, I'm hanging out and I'm being them for the sake of a relationship or whatever. And he says he eventually went back to it and he was worse than when he had, when he had, when he had started. And he says a little while, this is the kicker, this is what I want you to hear today. 
And he says a little while later, one of his friends turned to him while they were doing drugs and he said to him, you know, bro, I was watching you when you were clean and I was like, I wonder if that's real because I want that so much. And he says, wow, watching you here, I guess that wasn't really all that I thought it was. And my friend says that when his friend said that, his heart sank. Staying away was actually a witness to the power of Jesus Christ. His faith didn't survive the, the hardship because he didn't value the holiness. And so here's what I would say. You and I are called to live a holy life. And if you do not live a holy life, your ability to think clearly and quickly is compromised and impaired. You were not thinking soberly. And that's what happened to him. So here's what I want. Are you scared of holiness? You don't have to be. I think I have this one question that goes up in there. I don't know if you have it here. Is there something in your life that God has asked you to do that you're scared of doing? Whatever that is, I would actually encourage you to be that, to, to engage in it. You and I are called to live a holy life. So, with that said, how do you have a faith that endures? You have a mind that is prepared for action. You think quickly. And you have a sober mind, which means you think clearly. And you do that by doing three things. Putting your hope in Jesus. Avoiding regretting into your former ways of life and living a holy life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today, and thank you for the goodness of the cross. Thank you that you've not only forgiven us of your sin, you've called us out to be uh, people that live holy, uh, following you. I pray, God, that you would show us this morning where in our lives we, we can live a, a holy life, where we can think, be ready to think quickly and think clearly. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen.